Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to figure out whether it's true or not that all Christians are hypocrites by the way that Jesus defines the term. And on The Wire, Alyssa Milano is fighting stricter abortion laws and in the process saying way more than she intended about the way people view sex, abortion, and something women often deny. All that and more as we give them the bold speak. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Bold Speak podcast. Very glad you can join me as we continue through this study, uh, taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount in a study we call Condition of the Heart, and looking at some of the deeper things inside of us that go beyond the surface-level Christianity. So I want to thank you for, for taking some time with me. Is We're going to talk today about a, a topic that I've spent a lot of time addressing over the years, and it's, it's a very common complaint uh, from people outside of Christianity and even within Christianity that Christians are hypocrites. In fact, it's so prevalent that, that most times many Christians just sort of accept it and agree uh, because that's just sort of the way that, that Christianity has been presented to them, in particular in regard to the nature of sin and the life of the Christian. I, however, and I think Jesus would agree, think that such an accusation is completely unwarranted for most Christians. And I'll show you why that is as we get a little further into Matthew by addressing Matthew chapter 6. All right, so we're going to go ahead and, and get into that. If you have your study guide in front of you, this is now the beginning of lesson five, which is going to start on page 20. If you haven't had an opportunity to pick up our study guide, I encourage you to do so on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. Uh, there, if you go to the store, you can get the, uh, the the study guide there and follow along relatively easy with us and have a chance to write some things down that'll help you remember things in the future and track along as the entire Sermon on the Mount goes on. All right, so as we get into this, we're going to be dealing with Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 today, but we're going to start with Matthew 6, 1 to 4. I'm going to be reading that in the English Standard Version of the Bible, which is the version that I like and that I use, but you don't have to have an English Standard Version. You can use whatever version works for you. Just go ahead and grab that, and I'll give you all the verse references so you can follow along easily. And if you don't have access to a Bible right now, that's perfectly fine. I'm going to read all of these to you so you can track along easily, and we can move forward, continue continuing to learn uh, about what Jesus is trying to communicate to the church through the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, as your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Question 1 asks, What problem is Jesus addressing in Matthew 6, verses 1 to 2. 
Now, in verses 1 to 2, he says, you know, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people that you may be seen by them, for you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he he continues on with that line talking about people doing things to be praised by others. And in particular, um, when they give, they, they kind of make a big spectacle of it. And here, Jesus refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites. Now, when it comes to the the accusation of hypocrisy and what it means to be a hypocrite, I think there's some things that we have to clarify. When Jesus talks about a hypocrite, he's using a very specific term to mean a very specific thing. The word hypocrite itself uh, comes from a Greek word, hypocrites, which simply means uh, an actor, right? Someone who portrays something. And so here in this light, what we have to see is that the accusation Jesus is making by calling them hypocrites is to say that the Pharisees are presenting themselves to be something that they actually are not. What is that? Generous. Uh, people of God. People who, who give because they care about the community. They give, absolutely. But when they do it, they make a spectacle of themselves so that other people can praise them. Rather than trying to love and care for people that God may be praised through their work, they're doing it in such a way that they will be praised and get all the credit and all the benefit and the fame that comes along with it. And so what they're presenting outwardly doesn't match what's going on inwardly. Right? And so this is how it connects when you when he says, you know, truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. When they gave, what they were after is the praise of people. They wanted uh, the people around them, the community, to look at them and say, wow, what, what an amazing person. Why did you see how much they gave? Right? And, and so, you know, they're going up there and putting this, this giant sack of money down and, you know, oh, wow, can't believe uh how much I'm giving this week. That's that's incredible, man. Things must be must be going well. God's certainly, you know, blessing me and, and this is this is just fantastic. And all that does is it garners the attention of other people and then they're like, wow, I mean God must be really blessing that person and you know things must be going really well for them. And, and so what you're seeing is is the, <laughs> all they're doing is simply for the praise and, and appreciation and, and love of the people to build themselves up. And so that's how they've received that reward. That's what they were after, and that's exactly what they got. But that's not the purpose of giving. Right? The purpose of giving is to love and take care of the people around you. And so here's where we have to kind of take some time to consider what the idea of a hypocrite is. And, and in particular, the accusation that's thrown at Christians many times for being hypocrites. To be a hypocrite means that you, again, represent yourself to be something that you are not. And if you're representing yourself to be something that you're not, um, in, in that situation, what you're seeing is is a disconnect between the outward action and the inward reality, right? So when it comes to the, the declaration that all Christians are hypocrites, we have to consider in each in particular situation what that Christian is presenting and whether or not that matches and fits with what either they believe or uh, kind of the, the way their heart, the condition of their heart in particular. I think for most people, the, the accusation that all Christians are hypocrites comes from the idea of, of sin. In other words, Christians go around saying that you should live a certain way, that you should act a certain way, that you should do certain things, and that you know God has a law and a way that he's created the world to work and we should abide by it. Then at the same moment, they also see Christians struggling with sin, right? Christians make mistakes. 
And so here's where we have a little bit of a disconnect. If the Christian themselves is saying, well, yes, you know, Christians are, are righteous and holy people and we live in accordance with God. And, and I don't struggle with sin. I don't, I don't, you know, have an issue with sin. Um, you know, I live a good, perfect and holy life. Then, yes, that particular Christian is a hypocrite. All right, because what they're what they're presenting to people is that they don't struggle with sin. They never have an issue. And, and so when they do struggle with sin, because we all struggle with sin, then it comes across as being hypocritical. However, if we confess what the Bible teaches uh, about sin, if we confess what the Bible teaches um, uh, about the struggles that humans have, then I would say that we aren't. Uh, hypocrites. There's actually nothing hypocritical about our struggle, right? Several places in scripture, we see this, right? In particular, you see this in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 14 verses one to three say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds and there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it's that sentiment that Paul picks up in Romans 3 uh, when he says, beginning at verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so the, the sentiment that Paul is expressing here, he continues on in, in Romans 3.23 to confirm and say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the confession of the Christian church has always been that sin is a reality in our lives and it's something that we struggle with and something we need to be redeemed from. And now, it's in that context that as long as the Christian is saying, look, we all struggle, I struggle, right? I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need moments to repent. I, I, I struggle with these things and I need help just like everybody else. Then I don't think it is a fair assessment to call every Christian a hypocrite because it, it's <laughs> the confession of sin and the struggle of sin and then the action of sin. That's congruent, right? We're not saying that we're perfect. We're not presenting ourselves to be something that we're not like the Pharisees were, right? The Pharisees wanted to be known in the community as the, the holy guys, the God guys, the guys that have it all together. When the truth is, is, is that they don't. And their actions and the way that they go about their, quote, holy living is evidence to that fact. All right, and that's going to get us to, to question two here, where it says, how does this issue connect to Jesus' theme of condition of the heart? Well, like we said, that the problem with being a hypocrite is that the outward action doesn't match the inward reality. The inward reality, that is the condition of the heart, is what Jesus is looking for. Because if the condition of the heart is correct, then the outward action will naturally follow. But the problem that he's having with the Pharisees and the religious people of the day is that they, they, they struggle with the condition of the heart. They're, they're prideful, they're boastful. They want the praise and adoration for themselves. And so this is the issue that Jesus is addressing and trying to move the people past. And, and something that I think he's trying to move us as the church past, right? It's not about the outward action. We, many times we get so fixated on the outward actions that we neglect the inward realities. When, if we treat the inward realities, if we look at the condition of the heart, we're, we're treating the illness, not the symptoms, right? And that's a big part of what Jesus is trying to get at here. 
the condition of the heart is looking at what's going on deeper that's bringing out and bringing about the outward actions. Okay, so this is this is kind of where he's going with all this. Now, his his solution, uh, I, I think, is is brilliant, and obviously it's Jesus. But right, his solution, I think, is adequate and, and really fantastic in regard to how to to address an issue like this. And that's question three: What does Jesus suggest as a solution to the problem? Well, his solution to the problem is to not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, and and then specifically, what he's trying to get at is uh, do it in secret. Right, do it out of the the full spectacle of people, because what that's doing is it's helping to 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 bring you some humility in regard to the purpose of what you're doing, so that your giving is specifically for the reason that you're supposed to give, which is just to love your neighbor. Right, we're we're not giving to to make you know all these things you know fantastic and wonderful and make people look at us and go, wow, what an amazing you know testimony to uh, you know what God is doing. You're giving because people need the gift, right? You're giving because people need love. You're giving to support the pastor and his family to make sure that they can put food on the table and, and make sure that the, the the family is taken care of. You're giving to make sure that the, the building that you use doesn't crumble to the ground and, and uh, that it, it doesn't really allow for people to to come into a space that, that helps them to, to listen and hear the gospel. You're giving to, to support ministries that reach out to your community and love and care for the people as Jesus has called you to do. That's why you give. Whether or not you get recognition is, is completely immaterial, right? It, it, what Jesus is saying is that's not important, right? In other words, if you're asking, does, does God see it and does he realize and recognize the love that you have for your neighbor? He, he does. Right? There's nothing that, that, that you do that, that God doesn't see. And so Jesus is saying, look, don't worry about the, the outward appearance. Don't worry about what other people are going to think or, you know, whether or not you're getting the recognition that you deserve or what. Give because people need it, right? Give because people need help, right? So do it in secret and your father who sees it in secret will reward you, right? He'll recognize what you're doing there. All right, and so um, Jesus is going to kind of continue this idea, and, and specifically, he's going to address the whole hypocrisy thing again. Um, you know, at first he did it with giving; now he's going to address it with prayer. All right, and that's Matthew chapter six, verses five to eight. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. All right, so question four says, what problem with prayer does Jesus point out that is similar to the issue with giving? What is his solution? Just like with the issue of giving, Jesus is addressing the, the religious people of the day and the, the way that they pray to make a spectacle of themselves. 
right? They're they're not praying to actually have a connection and conversation with God. They're not praying to to kind of align themselves with God. And we're going to get into a lot of the, the the realities of prayer when we get to the Lord's Prayer in the next podcast, All right? But a lot of the things that he's addressing here is again this sort of public display that draws people to to praising and and. Uh, venerating and honoring the one who's praying rather than the God they're praying to, right? And that's that's really important, again, for Jesus to, to make sure that the people understand. When you're dealing with condition of the heart, you recognize that the, the position inwardly is a communication with God, an alignment with God, a, um, a connection with God. It's not about throwing up some elaborate prayer so people look at you and go, oh, wow, did you hear that prayer? Whew. Man, that that's a really holy and and godly person. That's not the case. I I have heard prayers from people where they they stop and they stutter and they stammer a bit and and you know they're thinking as they're praying and, and trying to figure out the words and how to communicate what they're feeling and um, you know these sorts of things. And they have been wonderful prayers, wonderful prayers. I've also heard prayers that are very well put together, scripted out, but there's no life in them. And you're asking yourself, well, what, what are we doing here? I mean, we're, we're basically just reading to each other. And, and, and so it just it feels very stagnant and, and, and has no life in it. Right? Prayer is not about having all the right words. Prayer is about a communication and connection with God. And specifically what it's accomplishing, which we're going to get into next week, is this kind of alignment and, and what that means. All right? So Jesus' solution then, it, just like in the situation of giving, is to do it in private. Don't make a spectacle of yourself. If if the goal is communication and connection with God, then then go ahead and do that. Right? You don't need to, to to be in public to do that and make a show of it in order to do that. God listens to you and listens to your prayer in secret, just as much as any other prayer. Now, is that to say that we shouldn't do public or corporate prayers? No, not at all. I think many times praying out loud can help other people to, to be informed about things that should be prayed about. Um, it allows a community to sort of pray together with one voice. Um, so there's a, a really big community aspect to that, and that can be fine. The issue is don't make a show out of it for the sake of personal pride. That's where it becomes hypocritical, right? Again, you'll notice he used the same word, right? And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Okay, so the again, the, the, the inward condition of the heart needs to reflect the outward action. And that's, that's really, really important. Now, in this particular instance, he actually addresses another side to this by getting into what the Gentiles do. And that's question five. What issue is Jesus addressing regarding the Gentiles' prayers? Well, it appears that the, the Gentiles were, um, rather than doing, uh, you know, like the Pharisees do, where it's a, a big holy spectacle and things like that, the Gentiles were, were heaping up lots of phrases and words. And it, it seems or appears here that these were sort of like mantras that were repeated um, quite frequently in, in a very similar way as, as was done with pagan worship. Um, and in this particular situation, Jesus is saying, look, you, you, you don't need a whole bunch of words. Um, to, to, again, sort of make a spectacle of this and, and make it seem like, you know, if you don't put in this many words or, you know, don't make it a long prayer, then God doesn't care or, or isn't going to listen. Um, you don't have to provoke God to listen to you like it had to be many times in, in pagan and, and uh, Gentile worship. All right. Uh, 
God listens to you because he loves and cares for you. And God is always listening to you and always invites you to speak to him. Whether it's a, a short prayer before you go in for a job interview or um, you know, a short prayer before you go into a, a very important or significant moment, whether it's in the midst of the chaos of children everywhere and you're trying to figure out what to do as a parent and you just write <laughs> a small prayer, God, please help me give you some direction. I, I don't know what's going on here. That's perfectly fine. That's, that's all that God desires. He wants a relationship. He wants communication. Now, in, in this regard, there's a, a particular issue that I, I always find very fascinating and I've discussed with people more, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If you want to uh, write a comment or, or send me a message and engage in a conversation up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, uh, all at forward slash the bold speak, I'd love to engage on this. This is one of those um, places where I, I think we have to give some serious consideration uh, to the, the public day of prayer, right? The meet me at the poll day. I understand the, the purpose of trying to draw a community in uh, to pray together. And I think that is important. I think that is significant. But I do question whether or not we need to make a spectacle of it on one particular day, uh, gathering around a flagpole uh, to pray together. What's the purpose? If the purpose is to, to show the school um, and show the people around you, the community around you, that you all believe in Jesus Christ and you speak to him and that's important, uh, I get that, but I actually think there's a, a lot better ways to do that. Um, engage in a conversation with people about Jesus. Engage in a conversation with people about faith. Many times the, the see you at the poll day just ends up being a bunch of people gathered around a flagpole. Uh, they pray and they kind of do their thing and then they go about their day. And it's like, well, did you see me? I was at the poll today. Um, I don't know how productive that is. And it, to me, very dangerously borders on a lot of the things that Jesus is talking about here. Are you just making a spectacle of yourself? Or is there a purpose here? And, and so I think prayer at the poll day, I, I think it can be productive, but we have to do it in such a way that I think um, makes it a little bit more appropriate to the evangelical purpose of such a thing. Right? If you're going to pray, um, invite people as people are coming by. Hey, we're going to pray. Do you do you want to join us? Um, you know, is there something I can pray for you on? Right, not we're not just standing around a pole and praying, but stand there as people and engage people. Hey, I'm going to pray right now. Um, is there anything I can I can pray for you? Right, inviting people uh, to join you in a personal small prayer. Um, I think that can be incredibly effective and, and is very uh, evangelistic in its nature. Right, reaching out to people, showing people that you care about them. Um, and loving people. And that's that's the purpose, right? So, you know, in regard to the the National Day of Prayer, uh, you know, I think some, sometimes we, we do it in such a way that uh, may be bordering on the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about here. Um, and again, it's not to say that we shouldn't do it, but maybe there's a better way to do it. And then I think there are, right? So, so that's just a little bit about kind of that, that issue and, and uh, you know, the prayers and the hypocrisy that's sometimes tied to prayer. Now, in, in the larger conversation, this is going to be leading into Jesus' discussion of the Lord's Prayer, and that's why we, we have question six here. How does this fit into Jesus' conversation about the condition of the heart? The, the larger conversation that's going on about condition of the heart really does apply to prayer because what Jesus is pointing out when he's saying, you know, do it in secret and your Father who hears you in secret will reward you, is he's saying that, that prayer is a very personal thing. And, and while it can be done in the midst of a community and within a larger group, there is a, a strong connection between you and your father that really is getting to the condition of the heart. 
And so it's asking a bit of a larger question that I think is an excellent question that will lead us right into what Jesus is, is speaking about in the Lord's Prayer is, why are you praying? In other words, what do you hope to get out of it? If your prayer is focused on just getting something, right, that, that God is the uh, great and mighty vending machine that you just kind of put your prayer in and then you get out what you ask for, um, if that's the way you're looking at prayer, Jesus wants to stop you and say, wait, I'm not entirely sure you understand prayer, what its purpose is or how it works. And so the challenge that he's placing before us and will place before us is what is the condition of your heart as you enter into prayer? What's your goal? What do you hope to get out of it? What's your purpose? And rightly understanding your your purpose in prayer and what you're seeking to uh, achieve in that prayer will help your prayer um, to actually be crafted and molded by God himself through the working of the Spirit. And so what you're going to see next week as we get into the Lord's Prayer is Jesus is going to give the disciples an example of, of what prayer should look like. And, and we're going to take it, um, you know, article by article uh, in the prayer so that you have a chance to see um, what what Jesus is getting at um, and how prayer really operates and, and what the specific purpose and goal for prayer is because there is, in fact, a very specific goal and purpose for prayer. Um, there is an answer to that in, in terms of how we understand prayer and, and its its role in the Christian life. So I really encourage you uh, and hope you join me uh, for next week's podcast as we'll go through the entire Lord's Prayer and take a real close look at prayer. And and hopefully, um, you know, you can get some ideas out of that, that, that for me, once I came to these, these uh, kind of realizations, completely changed the way I pray, uh, completely changed the way that I understand prayer. So I really, really sincerely hope that you join me for that. Now, uh, when it comes to the inward feelings and mentality making its way outward into the living of our lives, former Who's the Boss child star Alyssa Milano caused quite a stir this week by tweeting a proposed strike on sex. Her intention was to draw attention to what she perceives as a setback in women's rights with Georgia's heartbeat law, making an abortion after you can hear a fetal heartbeat illegal. What came out of the tweet, however, with some inward feelings and thoughts that showed something I don't think she was intending to show. What was that? That's our topic of discussion on this week's The Wire. Our reproductive rights are being erased. Until women have legal control over our own bodies, we just cannot risk pregnancy. Join me by not having sex until we get bodily autonomy back. I'm calling for a hashtag sex strike. Pass it on. This tweet from actress and producer Alyssa Milano is asking for extreme measures to curb what she sees is a violation of women's rights. She is proposing a sex strike to encourage the autonomy of women to do what they feel is right for their bodies, specifically to allow them to have an abortion if they want one. But is that all she's asking for? And what are the implications of such a demand? Let's take a closer look, shall we? First, if you're attempting to wage a war for the sake of women's rights to choose whether or not she should have an abortion, yes, adopting a strong stance on abstinence would certainly allow a woman to choose whether or not she wants an abortion because the choice is simple. The answer will always be no. No sex means no babies, which means no unwanted pregnancies, which means no abortions. Uh, I have to say I'm good with that. 
And so are the people who are responsible for making the laws respecting the life of the unborn. Second, and most alarming, this confirms the view of some women that has been denied by many women for years. It confirms that some women see sex as a tool for control. The only way that Alyssa Milano's sex strike can be seen to be at all effective is if women enter the issue already assuming that sex can be used as a weapon to get what they want. Sex here is being promoted as a means to an end to satisfy an agenda, men being manipulated by women through the use of sex. Tell me, ladies, isn't this the opposite direction from where we were heading? In a day and age where the topic of sex is readily on people's minds and the abuse of sex is all over the front page, you would think that women, especially in the public sphere, would hesitate to make any insinuation that they use sex to manipulate situations. But here we are. Alyssa Milano wants women to use sex to control a situation. But this is bad for relationships and sex all around. Let's consider the fallout of this proposed sex strike. One, for married couples, this is devastating. Since marriage is the sexual act, further sexual acts within the marriage are like a renewal of the vows. It is a chance for a man and woman to come together and be united in a unique and special way. For a woman to refuse that on the basis of a political agenda is to make the connection of their marriage based on actions and circumstances completely outside of and unrelated to their marriage. That's just foolish and dangerous. A marriage is about the relationship between the couple, not dependent upon some political agenda. To allow external realities to have such a major impact on one of the foundations of a relationship sets a dangerous precedent for the marriage's future. Two, another detriment for married couples is what this strike is actually controlling. You do understand that it takes a long time for legislation to pass, right? This proposed strike could go on for a long, long time. By participating in this strike, the woman is forcing her husband to restrict his desires and body because of her choice. In other words, and I want to make sure I say this very clearly, the wife is establishing a law that has a direct effect on how her husband uses his body. Does anyone else see the irony here? Three, this solidifies the idea that sex is nothing more than a thing to be used however you see it. Women can use or refuse sex in order to accomplish a goal, but sex isn't a goal. It's a human connection. Uh, to, to strike on sex is as if it was some kind of fast food made with harmful chemicals or uh, a toy manufactured with lead. But to do that makes sex into just another object rather than the intense, beautiful, and sacred connection that it actually is. A strike only further trivializes something that should be taken very seriously. Honestly, I'm not sure what Alyssa was after, but I don't think she thought it through. Uh, since that tweet to action, she has been struggling to justify and explain the call for a sex strike to numerous media outlets who have been critical of her proposed movement, ultimately saying that well, regardless of people's opinions, she at least got a dialogue going. Well, I suppose that's true. There is a dialogue, but it's not about abortion. 
All Alyssa ended up showing is the ugly side of how some women use sex. But who knows? Maybe it's time for that discussion too. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Make sure you check in with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Check out our website at www.theboldspeak.com. And make sure you subscribe to this channel and all our media channels to get the latest news, information, and updates as we release them. Again, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Anthony Creedon, and that is The Bold Speak.